The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. It's Thursday, October 6th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I shall now read some tweets from President Biden. Oh, you love this section of the show. First, the president says, I'm pardoning all prior federal offenses of simple marijuana possession. There are thousands of people who were previously convicted of simple possession who may be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities as a result. My pardon will remove this burden. Two, I'm calling on governors to pardon simple state marijuana possession offenses. Just as no one should be in a federal prison solely for possessing marijuana, no one should be in a local jail or state prison for that reason either. Three more tweets in the thread. One is calling on the AG and the Secretary of Health and Human Services to reclassify marijuana. Talks about his commitment to stamping out trafficking, marketing, and underage sales of marijuana and notes that Sending people to jail for possessing marijuana has upended too many lives without even talking about the clear racial disparities. Now, President Biden did not say otherwise. I don't think he's trying to fool us on this point, but it must be noted that there are no people in federal prison solely for simple possession of marijuana. Now, he never said, I'm releasing the prisoners who are there because they're not there. What he did say was, if there is a conviction for that, they'll be pardoned. He calls on states to do the same thing. And he talked about how unfair it was that there were people in this position. I agree with all that. I think it's a clear political win. It is interesting to me why the Republicans do not embrace this issue more. Marijuana decriminalization is really, really popular. It gets more popular as the country becomes not younger, but the average birth year is 1984. Many, many people have had experiences with marijuana and they say to themselves, no one should go to jail for this. No one should go to jail for maybe slipping me some in college or before a concert by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Are they still playing? Let's say yes for purposes of this segment. Good job, Joe Biden, doing a popular thing that also gives him and his party some benefit. Let us see how many governors follow along. I would say probably those in close political races will not, but some even Republican governors might see the wisdom of just taking the win. On the show today, I spiel about a New York Times front page story mentions of civil war flare up after search of Trump's property. But first, Michelle Tafoya was a sideline reporter for NBC Sports, and after 11 years, she decided to leave and start the new podcast, Sideline Sanity with Michelle Tafoya, where she could speak more about her thoughts outside of politics or about politics. Today, we talked to her about her time at NBC, her change, and her thoughts on Colin Kaepernick. Michelle Tafoya up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. 
The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. The third biggest star and female lead of the most watched show on primetime television last year left. In fact, it wasn't just the number one show on television last year. It's held that status for 11 straight years. And the star left to pursue her own interests when it comes to talking frankly about politics. How come, you might be saying, this example is not coming to mind? I think I should definitely know it. Well, I did a little bit of a reverse because the star in question is Michelle Tafoya. The show in question is Sunday Night Football. And yes, she, Al Michaels, Chris Collinsworth, those are the stars of the show. Though you can argue, you know, Pat Mahomes and Tom Brady played a role. But now here's the double reverse. The type of politics that Michelle wants to talk about is mainly to the right, though certainly not ideological or doctrinaire. She felt a little limited in her ability to do so in her former professional life as a sideline reporter, the host of Sideline Sanity with Michelle Tafoya. The aforementioned Michelle Tafoya joins me now. Thanks for coming on The Gist, Michelle. Thanks for having me. That's well, that was quite an intro. Right? Was it too long? What do you think? Because <laughs> <laughs> you have to, when, when they go to you on the sidelines, how much time was allotted for your commentating? Generally, you had like 20 to 30 seconds. Uh-huh. So, you know, it always depended on the circumstance. But so often you were just trying to fit in a, a cogent report between downs or between plays or, in a, you know, it, it, that you, you really had to be brief. So it's kind of like being a field goal kicker. When you come on, it matters and you don't want to screw it up. Right. <laughs> but was that, did that frustrate you the length of time you got? Or was it like, if you're a poet writing a sonnet, why get upset that it's only 16 lines? Well, that's a great question. I, I'm not a very good poet, so I don't <laughs> enjoy writing sonnets. I, I enjoy talking. And so, yeah, I would say, you know, for someone like me with a lot to say, it. it listen, I loved my time on Sunday Night Football, Monday Night Football. It, it was one of the greatest privileges of my professional life to be part of those shows and with that cast that you aptly described first Al Michaels and John Madden, then Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth, all Hall of Famers in the broadcast world. And Fred Godelli, my producer, Drew Esikoff, my director. I mention those names because they're all, every one of them, a Hall of Famer. On, on And we all worked together so collaboratively and it was so fun. So no, I didn't have complaints. I mean, yeah, they, you wanted to be involved in the broadcast. That's why you got into the game, right? But in my role, it just it that particular role is is more limited than that of an analyst or a play-by-play announcer. In doing the job, did you feel oppressed, sup- suppressed in any way, not able to? God, well, no. I, well, I wouldn't imagine that the actual four corners of the job, you would feel that way. But when you compared yourself to others in your profession who were maybe free to speak out on social issues, freer because their point of view is more to the left, did you feel that there was an unfairness or in some way that you were not allowed to express yourself as much as they were? There's no question that the room for conservative 
speaking out, commentary, posting on social media, whatever, draws more controversy than if you're to the left of center. That's just a fact of life. And so I made peace with that while I was working on Sunday Night Football because Sunday Night Football was the number one show on television and it was a priority. It was the most prized property that NBC had. And I respected that. And we talked about it and they let me do a number of events that were political. I'd host a Lincoln Reagan dinner, that kind of thing. But as far as what I posted and that kind of thing, you know, and, and it wasn't until my final year and we all knew it was going to be my final season that they allowed me to go onto the view and talk on the view. And then once I did it once, they said, no more. We just don't want to draw any controversy to this show. I respected that and made peace with that. And so I was okay with that, but I'm not okay with the notion that you can get away with saying some things, but not others on the, on the political spectrum. I, I think that's wrong. No, I heard your, I heard a bunch of your interviews. I heard your first interview with Bob Costas, who I regard as he, he has been paid to give his political opinions, but very much a centrist and maybe if, even if not a centrist, a moderate, he talked on your show about prizing, having a subscription to the New York times and the wall street journal. And I had to smile because, you know, back in 1980, that probably was the epitome of centrism. Now we fractured into so much uh, further left and right, but it did come out that he said, you know, in his conversations with you, and I assume this was true of most of the broadcast crew, they knew exactly where you stood. You must've known to the extent they wanted to get into politics where they, they stood. And it seemed to me, but you tell me, that no one that you worked with had any problem with any of that. No, no, not at all. And, and there were some uh, uh, election seasons when we had great debates and some fiery debates. Uh, but for the most part, we were such good friends. We were like family on the road. So, you know, no one, everyone knew where I stood. I knew where pretty much where everyone stood. Um, and so there were times to, you know what, let's limit the conversation. It's not going to go anywhere. And there were times where it was like, yes, let's engage. And we had a lot of fun together. And I think the, some of the best TV in the world could have come from those van rides that we all had together. Al, Chris, me and our, and our cohort, uh, we had a blast. We had some great conversations, but yeah, I mean, I, but it wasn't going to be something that I demonstrated uh, during the game. And, and I don't think Al and Chris did either. So I would think that most American political issues just wouldn't naturally lend themselves to a tightly produced football game. No one's going to be debating the tax code. But when the issue of Kaepernick came up, were there any editorial decisions or debates or the ways to frame it that were interesting and that you were involved in in retrospect? I don't know how interesting you'll think they were, but we definitely had to address how are we going to document this? We are documenting a football game. And this is something that's going on on the field. And yes, it started with Kaepernick. And then, of course, it spread. And then, of course, uh, President Trump said what he said uh, about people kneeling on the field. And so there had to be and, and we had a game in Washington shortly thereafter. So we had to address the elephants in the rooms, in the various rooms that we stepped into. But we didn't do it with opinion or a side. We just tried to document it. That was our philosophy. Document the game. If there are people, if we're showing the anthem and there are people kneeling during the anthem, let's get shots of that and 
let's make note of that mentally, because if I happen to talk to one of them in the post game, does it need to come up? Does the topic need to come up? How do we address it? But in a very matter of fact, middle of the road, journalistic kind of way, not with any bent. And I think that's what served us so well all those years. So I can ask you now, not as an NBC employee, but as the host of Sideline Sanity, do you think Colin Kaepernick was denied a role even as a backup quarterback because of his political stances? I won't say that it had nothing to do with his his football career. At the same time, I will say that he has been given chances to try out for teams, to interview with teams. I know that for a fact. And so if if... I don't think there's necessarily collusion amongst the teams. I think if Colin Kaepernick had an arm like Aaron Rodgers or the mobility of uh, Patrick Mahomes or the, you know, if he was a superior quarterback, I'm not just talking about like, you know, it was said to me on The View, it's all he ever wanted to do was be an NFL quarterback. Well, then why did he, well, that doesn't why matter. did, that doesn't matter. You know, I, that could be, that could have been my <laughs> yes. goal too. Wonderful. But yeah. you know, not everyone. <laughs> I wanted to be on yeah, Broadway. Right. Not, not everyone know. gets to do it. So to just say that Colin Kaepernick is not in the NFL today because of that, I think is to overlook many, many nuances of what it means to be a quarterback in the NFL, what it requires and so all of those things were involved as well. And and so I, I, I'm not going to say it didn't put certain teams off or they didn't want to draw that kind of attention or have that distraction. But if he were a superior Super Bowl winning quarterback, he'd have a job. I mean, but for a Joe Flacco comeback, he would have been a Super Bowl winning quarterback. And he, I'd, I'd say he has more mobility than Patrick Mahomes, just not everything else that Patrick Mahomes has. I mean... My take on it is that what most of what you're saying is true, but he was so good that if you divorce his politics from it, um, and I think it was uh, Mike Freeman of Pro Football Focus or someone who ran the numbers, he's the best quarterback who never played another down who wasn't injured. His season, his last season was the best that any quarterback has ever had if you look at advanced metrics by someone who never got to play the game again. I don't know specifically what you're talking about or the the way that Kaepernick's final season was analyzed. So I'm not going to go into that. But what I can tell you is I think that's a simplistic way to look at the overall issue. Now, if you're just going by these metrics of completions and um, yards per attempt and all those kinds of numbers, you know, again, statistics can be molded to to draw a very particular picture. I'm not saying that they were, but I... I'd have to look at that and I just haven't. So I, I don't want to comment on on that particular observation. But when you talk to, I mean, this was your job, talking to coaches and assistant coaches and talent evaluators. I mean, you must have asked him this question. You know, is he good enough right now to be on a roster? If not start, what did they say? It, it didn't come up a lot. Again, we document games that we're, we're covering. And it doesn't always have to do, not everything had to do with Colin Kaepernick. Um, did I talk to people? Yeah, we talked to people. Uh, and I, I'm not going to say because many of these conversations were off the record, but so I won't detail whom we spoke with, but considerations were made. Opportunities were given. 
And I heard that he was even looking to get on a team this offseason. Some people thought he was looking really good. Some people thought he looked mediocre. So it's a matter of, look, there are so many judgments to be made about how you're going to put someone in that position. So did his politics get in his way? I think potentially. But was that the only thing? I don't think so. I, I just, I don't. I'm trying to be as honest and as open-minded about it as I can. But when a guy makes a documentary from Netflix for Netflix comparing the combine to the slave trade, that doesn't strike me as a guy who really all he ever wanted in life was to be an NFL quarterback. Because why would you then frame that league that you want to be a part of as something so oppressive and disgusting? That's an interesting other question, I think. Um, there are probably people in the NFL who agree with him, right? And so then I wonder, do they dare not speak out? And if so, isn't that somewhat what uh, drove you to do the job you're doing today? Isn't that a deleterious development that they can't say that? That's an interesting point. But I think when you're getting paid a million dollars a season, hundreds of thousand dollars a season, no matter what position you're playing, everyone in the NFL is really well paid. So I'm not sure how you can compare that to slave labor. Oh, yeah. Look, I for, for the record, I think it's a, a horrible comparison and an insulting comparison, et cetera, right. et cetera. I, I think when, when, I mean, I know Bill Roden wrote a book about million dollar slaves and Charles Barkley has said this and I never thought the analogy got there. But the question is, you know, speaking one's conscience and is it better or worse that someone would shut up about that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Look, he made a name for himself by speaking his conscience, by kneeling, by doing what he thought was a symbolic thing that was important to do. And so I, I honestly respect him for that. I really do, even though I don't disagree. I mean, I don't agree with his opinion about kneeling during the national anthem. I would not do it. That's not in my set of values. I respect him for doing it. And I would I would fight for his right to do it every day of the week. Every day of the week, I would say he should have a right to do that. And I really think that the NFL made an error, an unforced one by coming down with these rules about how, you know, if you're going to kneel, you can stay in the locker room, whatever, all that stuff, the rules that they made, I think this thing should have just let it, they should have let it play out organically, let players do what they want to do, say what they want to say, be who they want to be and, and, and let it kind of happen. And instead what, by slapping more rules on it, it, it did look like denying people their opportunity to express themselves and, it's it's a very tough, it's a very delicate thing we're talking about here because now these football teams are businesses. So, you know, there, there's, but ultimately for me, I'm a big freedom of speech person, all speech, all speech, because I think sunlight is the best disinfect. Let it out there. Let people see, be transparent about what you believe and what you say and let people decide for themselves. What did you think about Donald Trump saying asking a crowd he was in front of in Alabama that if they'd love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, huge cheer. What you think of that? I, I The second it happened, I went, oh, here we go. It, you've just made it so much worse. You've just made it so much worse. And he was playing- Well, to worse for the country. I don't know if it was worse for him. 
worse no, for Trump. That's what I'm saying. Worse for the country. That's that's my big concern. I I care about the country more than I care about any particular president of the United States. I care about the country. So um, I I just I cringed. You know, I cringed. I knew that it was he was saying what people, many people were thinking in their guts. And that's why they cheered because they did feel it was disrespectful. But at the same time, again, it's, it's, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And so I just thought, oh, I, I, you know, I cringed. There was an argument at the time that Trump's injection into the NFL and castigating the NFL in uh, partisan terms actually hurt ratings. And the 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 truth was that there there might have been a correlation. I don't know if there was causation, but ratings were down during that period, though your show was still number one in the Nielsen's as Trump was ripping into the NFL. You could also say that that's during election season when maybe people don't pay as much a attention to football as they do politics. But did you think, did you sense or feel or actually think that it might have been turning some people who'd normally be watching games off of doing so? That what might be turned off, that Trump or that, the kneeling? That Trump, that Trump criticizing the NFL. And as one commentator said, um, I can't believe in the national divorce, the Democrats are getting the NFL. But Trump weighing into it and castigating the NFL, could that have led to some diminishment in ratings. Let, let, let me say it this way. I believe the whole episode, all of it, led to a diminished ratings in the NFL. And it's true, there, there was an election season. And so, yes, a lot of attention was being paid to the, the cable news networks and so forth. But I to, to point, I think the whole thing, I think there were, listen, anecdotally, Anecdotally, I heard from a lot of people who were so disappointed that NFL players who were making a lot of money in, in this country because of fans who ultimately pay for the advertising that pays for the NFL and the networks, right? It's all this one symbiotic relationship, and it comes down to ratings. Who, who, who comes up with the ratings? Nielsen counts the number of eyeballs watching, and these are fans. And they love their teams and they love their players. And I think anecdotally, I heard more often than not, this had nothing to do with Trump. It had to do with disappointment in, in some players who were living the American dream in the view of these Americans, uh, kneeling during the anthem, which is for so many people, a unifying moment. And, and you heard it. How often did you hear? You tell me, how often did you hear, oh, these spoiled players? You know, they don't appreciate right. what, the, you know, and veterans were hurt by it. And a lot of people were were disappointed. And so right. I, I think the whole episode, not just one person's perspective on it, not just what one person said about it. I think the whole episode brought down ratings that year. Yes. And tomorrow we'll be rejoined by Michelle Tafoya as we talk not about the sideline, but the border. Donald Trump's effect on the Republican Party, and if the 2020 lies about the election being stolen get in the way of conservatives. Plus, there's a little bit of a conflict. Uh, we'll hash it out. You'll see. You know, we'll exchange jerseys at the end. It all ends well tomorrow with Michelle Tafoya. And now, the spiel. 
Here's the New York Times headline. After Mar-a-Lago search, talk of civil war is flaring online. What the article is trying to do is convince the Times' mostly liberal readership of a premise that the authors, the paper, and experts quoted clearly believe to be true, that if not most, at least a large portion of the talk of civil war comes from voices on the right who are advocating for a civil war. If they didn't believe in that premise, they wouldn't time and time again in the article treat mentions of civil war in and of themselves as troubling and probably dangerous. But the evidence presented here and gleaned from elsewhere doesn't actually lead to this conclusion. Talk of a civil war comes from voices on the right who are advocating for a civil war? No, I say. I say a better premise is that the vast, vast majority of talk of a civil war comes from those on the right and left, from people who are worried about a civil war. I mention this often because so few others are making this point. We are not actually on the brink of violent revolution, but we're being stirred up as if we were, which makes bad outcomes more likely by the way, rather than rehashing an analogy I once made about the panic over Islamic terrorism, which like right-wing terrorism is real scary and needs to be investigated, prosecuted, and disrupted. I will just read through the article, pointing out all the times the authors mistook talk or worry about civil war for endorsement of civil war. First off, the actual cases, cases where you could point to people who really did want civil war. They're all on the right. The Oath Keepers on trial for fomenting what they hope would be a civil war. True. In Michigan, there's another round of prosecutions from a group that did plan to kidnap the governor. A man did attack an FBI office with a nail gun and got shot to death by police for his efforts. That all happened. It's also true that the day after Mar-a-Lago was raided, references to civil war spiked online. But one of those spikes was the gist, beloved podcast, The Gist. I talked about it because I was worried that the worry over civil war was being inaccurately conflated with an endorsement of civil war, sort of engaged in similar efforts right now. Much of the talk of civil war came from left-leaning and mainstream media outlets concerned with talk of civil war. MSNBC, the day after the Mar-a-Lago warrant was served, featured their reporter, Ben Collins, who covered extremism. He reported on a comment on Truth Social that used the phrase civil war. According to a new report from NBC News' Ben Collins and Ryan Riley, users on far-right social media sites and messaging boards have responded to news of the FBI search by agitating for civil war. That was Ali Velshi and for Rachel Maddow that day. Collins reported that there was one user on Trump's Truth Social website who posted the words lock and load. That was like the most popular. They call them truths that day. And one of the comments under lock and load was written by Banana Guard 62, who wrote, are we not in a cold civil war at this point? Banana Guard, which, by the way, I think is a reference to Adventure Time, declined comment. Collins did reach out for him. Good for Collins. And the reason Banana Guard, real name Tyler Welsh Slaker, didn't want to talk is that he is awaiting sentencing for illegally trespassing on Capitol grounds on January 6th. Oh, but he'll post about what he said. I did find this explanatory post. He wrote, I asked on here, Truth Social, if we are not in a cold civil war at this point, and the media attacked me for calling for violence, they never once discussed what a cold civil war meant. And he writes in parentheses, precluding violence by definition. That is... I guess what a Cold War means, non-shooting. I have to say, this doesn't, you know, exonerate him. I don't credit 
him for doing anything there except publicly backtracking on comments that really could hurt him at sentencing. But this one reference to Cold Civil War, which is not a benign reference, but it was cited on every single show in the MSNBC primetime lineup. At six, there's Ari Melber. One report here from NBC that some Trump users in online forums are talking about a, quote, civil war. At seven, there's The Readout, guest hosted on this day by Jason Johnson. I don't know what a cold civil war is, Ben. Maybe it's like gazpacho. It's not as spicy, not as violent. But what I've been noticing online, and you've sort of been paying attention to, is a lot of sort of angry rhetoric. Where is some of this coming from, this sort of civil war rhetoric? Is it primarily from known influencers? Is it from smaller accounts that are sort of being amplified? Where is that kind of violent talk coming from on social media? Chris Hayes at 8, hosted by Alicia Mendez. Trump supporters went even further online, making dangerous comments, many of them even suggesting that it is time for a civil war. And we played you Rachel Maddow, the Ali Velshi quote. I guess most of MSNBC was on August break back then. There certainly were right-wing references to civil war, but there was no effort to ascertain how many of the spikes in references were an endorsement and how many were a counter-reaction out of fear, not in the Times article. MSNBC made sure all their viewers knew the sentiment was out there. Guess the gist did too. The New York Times writes, polling social media studies and a rise in threats suggest that a growing number of Americans are anticipating or even welcoming the possibility of sustained political violence. To bolster their claim, the paper cites a poll. It was the one piece of evidence in the story that I actually was able to access the raw data of. Here's the poll. In late August, a poll of 1,500 adults by YouGov and The Economist found that 54% of respondents who identified as strong Republicans believed the Civil War was at least somewhat likely in the next decade. Only about a third of all respondents felt such an event was unlikely. Okay, but self-identified strong Democrats, of them, 39% say it's unlikely, and 40% of self-identified strong Democrats thought a civil war was at least somewhat likely. The numbers don't bolster the argument that talk of a civil war emanates from the right and is something like a wish or a threat in general. The numbers better support the thesis that most of the talk of a civil war comes from the right and the left from people who are clearly worried and do not want a civil war. The Times article then counts Twitter mentions. It cites the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats. And the research shows that before the Mar-a-Lago warrant, Twitter was averaging 500 tweets an hour that mentioned civil war. And then afterwards, and Trump tweeted about it, 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 it spiked to 30 times that rate. Okay, that was the word civil war. But what about sentiment? Was it glee? Was it dread? Well, civil war still gets a lot of mentions on Twitter. I just checked it out. The most engaged with tweets mentioning civil war right now come from Harvard Law Professor and January 6th Commission Advisor Lawrence Tribe, Yale historian Joanne Friedman, who wrote a book, Warning of Civil War, and lots and lots of people linking to that Times article, which is very worried and clearly quite opposed to civil war. Almost no one was actually advocating for civil war. Maybe the day after the Mar-a-Lago raid that was different, but maybe not. We don't know. The phrase doesn't mean much. The methodology of counting references with no effort to gauge sentiment makes all the data just really ambiguous. It seems to me really foolish to conflate utterance with intent, notwithstanding obvious incentives for media to capture attention via fear. 
I do think there's more evidence for my theory. We're seeing widespread worry about an unlikely occurrence versus the Times narrative about welcoming this unlikely occurrence. In fact, I don't think the Times and MSNBC offer any actual data to make me think that we are actually close to a civil war. The Times implies otherwise when they wrote about the growing number of Americans welcoming the possibility of sustained political violence. Growing number. Look, I don't think the number is shrinking. I don't think it's really stagnant. It seems to be growing from very, very rare to very rare. But forget me. I look at researchers from Dartmouth and Stanford who co-authored a study titled Current Research overstates American support for political violence. Their point is that most survey questions that purport to show there is widespread acceptance of political violence ask vague questions. They got specific. They asked their questions to 4,000 respondents and made sure the respondents were really paying attention. They found that only 2.9% support politically motivated violence among those who were really paying attention. And even among the 2.9%, They also almost all support prosecuting politically motivated violence. 2.9% is high. It's millions of people. I don't know what that number would have been during the Obama administration or the Bush or the Clinton or the Rutherford B. Hayes administration. We didn't have good data then. But we do now, only it's not the data that's being most widely disseminated. You have a much greater chance to cite one of the misleading surveys that have a number somewhere near 18 or 20% advocating for political violence than you do this excellent study, which really drilled down and found it's about 2.9%. 2.9%, by the way, is a little lower than the number of people who tell pollsters that lizard people control the world. The lizard people finding is really infamous in polling because it shows that you can get a small number of people to say just about anything on a poll. One reason is that people who take polls like to screw with pollsters. Another is that there really are deranged people out there. And a third is that, I don't know, maybe lizard people are controlling us. But to quote the study, which found the actual rates of advocacy of violence at 2.9%, quote, although recent acts of political violence dominate the news, they do not portend a new era of violent conflict, to which I'll add a request. Please, the news, don't allow yourself to be dominated by the false idea that we're on the precipice of a war with ourselves, because in this case, the more you get that story wrong, the more likely it is to become right. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Gist's assistant producer, Joel Patterson is the just senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO, the coup of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. Here's how it works. For advertising inquiries, you go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, gperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>